Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, and welcome to The Art Detective with me, Dr. Yanina Ramirez. I'm an Oxford art historian, a writer and a broadcaster, and I'm also your chief investigator of images. I'm delighted today. Today is very exciting. It is very exciting. It's very exciting. You've heard the voice of my super number one guest today. I'm with Tony Robinson. <laughs> Hello, Tony. Hello. And I think we're going to spend the whole podcast telling people how excited we are. <laughs> because when you asked me to do this and I came up with an idea, you went, oh, wow, I actually I, I incorporated this into my PhD. I've always been really excited about it. <laughs> it's, it's doubly exciting for me uh, because you are my hero. I oh, have to nice. say that. I mean, ever since I was young, I think you've been the, the soundtrack of my life, really, because I've been a history geek forever and watching Blackadder and Maid Marian. I had flashbacks to that. But Time Team, of course, and, and all the wonderful work you've done it, it showed me that actually history is, is fascinating oh come on look we haven't got very oh, long I love to big you up that's what I'm here to do but I should actually big up the thing that we're in the presence yeah, of yeah, because yeah, yeah. wow what an experience we have been allowed out the replica of the Frank's casket now of course we can't get the original out we are talking about an Anglo-Saxon whalebone casket it's fragmentary it's in a climate controlled box in the British Museum but we have managed to get the exact replica out. which itself is an exhibit in the British Museum it's so it, we're very honoured to be allowed to do this it's called the Frank's casket and I always assumed until fairly recently that that meant it was Frankish the Franks being the uh, what third century onwards people who uh, founded what we think of as France now. It's actually given to the BM by a bloke called Franks. Exactly. <laughs> Augustus Williston Franks. He's a, he was actually one of the curators, wasn't he? And, um, and the story's great. Do you know how he found the pieces? Did, Tell me. He was just wandering around an antiques shop in France and they were, little, they were all in pieces like this piled up hidden in a, in a, they'd been in a drawer in a stately home in France. And originally there was like silver clasps and a silver lock at the front. But those, the family from this, this house in Alzheimer's had taken those off and melted them down to make a finger ring. But they just stacked up these, what they thought were quite useless bits of bone. And, and he knew what they were. And so he, I think he, I don't think he paid much. <laughs> he brought it back and went, look what I found, Anglo-Saxon carved panels. I suppose to explain why we are so excited, or certainly that I am, is that the Romans leave Britain and then there is all this kind of Arthurian confusion, as far as I'm concerned, really until 
Office Dyke and uh, and King Alfred, and suddenly there, there is a coherence again, and we see the, the 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 beginning of the formulation of England as we know it. But there's so little that we can definitely say for sure about that intervening few hundred years. And that's represented, isn't it, in the British Museum, because in the 19th century, you had these incredible, like the, the Babylonians, -da -da, the Assyrians, <laughs> the Romans, the ancient, gorgeous ancient Greeks. And really, as far as the Anglo-Saxons were It's like one cabinet with a few shiny things yeah. in it. But then, yeah, but you're absolutely right, and and I think this is the way that we've traditionally perceived history: that the great civilizations make megaliths in stone and they write things down. And if the, if the culture isn't doing those things, they're uncivilized and potentially barbaric and not worth studying. And I suppose the other thing about the Anglo-Saxons is that, by and large, the world in which they were living in was comprised of things that rot. Yes. So it's only the hard stuff that remains, and there wasn't that much of it yeah and and so and much most of what we see is high status and this frank's casket i know do, do you think it would have belonged to a king or an archbishop i mean it's so much work has gone into yeah it. well we should we should say a bit about about the object its dimensions so it's a, it's about the, about 23 centimeters long by about 20 cent uh, 20 centimeters wide and 10 centimeters high so it looks a bit like a big box that you might put kleenex tissues it in, does it? doesn't it it does look like a tissue box yeah or a shoe box for very little shoes um but it's it, it's in fragments it's been reconstructed here in the replica so, so it looks like it would have done and the fact that it's it's not ivory but it's emulating ivory he's trying to suggest that it's very high status because only the top members of, of Roman society would have exchanged ivory boxes. But it, it's whalebone, and that in itself is intriguing, isn't it? Because whale would have been rare. You didn't, don't, they don't get chucked up on the, on the beach very often. But there's something symbolic about whale, isn't there? It's like, it's like Noah and going into the mouth of something huge. And I think I'm right in saying that the whole story of Noah's Ark was seen at that time as a prefiguration of Jesus and his death and coming out of the cave and all that. So Absolutely, the whale symbolism is really wrapped up with ideas of Jesus, and, and um, I mean, you get lots of, of Christian legends where the whale's very symbolic. So it's a symbolic medium. And what we haven't said, and it's pretty daft given that we must be at least 10 minutes in, <laughs> is that the casket itself is covered in carved stories. Uh, uh, carved stories. It's um, it, it's like the Beano, isn't it? The, the Beano for the religious. I love it. The Beano for the religious. Because it is annotated. It's got uh, images and inscriptions. And that idea of text and image alongside each other. You're right. It's a bit like a comic. <laughs> and, 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 and what's so interesting about the stories, and, and I suppose this is probably why you and I get so excited about it, is that they're not from one culture. Virtually everything in the British Museum, you point out and say, you know, that's Roman or that's Greek or whatever. Here, you've got loads of different languages. You've got Roman stories, Anglo-Saxon, uh, Jewish stories, Christian stories, all on this one box. What the hell are they doing? And why are there so many different languages? It is an enigma. When you suggested it, we both we spoke about it. We both got excited because we just, you'd actually said to me, this is the, the one object that just defies me. It's a mystery. And that is what I think this is. It is, it is one of the biggest mysteries to me. Um, I was saying to you earlier, I had a student a who wrote a PhD on this, spent five, six years working on it, came to the conclusion that they, they still couldn't completely unpick it. And you've got scholars that worked on this who've gone mad in the process. There was a scholar that, that spent most of his life counting the dots. 
And he thought that there were these numerological symbols, uh, symbols to the number of dots. And he, he was, you know, he went completely berserk going over it. So, yeah, it, it is, it is difficult to unpick. Don't tell Dan Brown about it. <laughs> <laughs> I know, it's a whole book, isn't it? We'll get another really bad book. <laughs> Should we talk about some of the stories that yeah. are on it? Yeah, let's. So we should probably start the front, shouldn't we? Yeah. So that's probably where where it would have been encountered if you were presenting this box to someone. Can I tell this one? Because this is Please. one of the few that uh, that I think I can actually decode. Go for it. Go for it. Right. This is the three wise men over here on the right hand side, mm. isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. The the, the, the magi. Um, so it's it's saying something about about kingship, isn't it? Definitely, definitely. Um, and who are these here in this? Well, we've said, yeah, you've got, you've got a really building. interesting contrast between outside scenes and indoor scenes. And outside they have these willowy sort of trees. Indoors is shown with these sort of columns and arches. So that's some sort of, uh, I think that's probably the stable. With, ah, with Mary, Mary and, and Jesus. Jesus. And they're yeah. both sort of haloed here. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think this is this sunburst that you can see. I think that's the star that they're following. You must come to the BM and have a look at this because you've got the, th- the three wise men being led by a duck. Absolutely. <laughs> it, this Jesus is a duck. Mary. It is definitely a duck. Honestly, I have... Because like, this is why I got into this. I wrote my... my my thesis on bird symbolism and everybody says it's a duck and and I, I yet to be convinced it isn't it seems to be a bird that's escaped from the scene next door and has run out and um, and is sort of leading the viewer around the box and what is the scene next door this is on the left hand side of the front okay well what do you think because we've got this character to the side with the sort of bent leg and and tools in his hand that's the smith isn't that's it? well in the smith that is well yeah, yeah yeah so that's a different uh, when when does welland appear in history well this is the this is the interesting contrast about this front isn't it you've got a scene that's clearly christian Alongside a scene that is clearly pagan, Germanic mythology. Because Wellens, um, he was a smith, but he was seen to have magical powers. And, um, and yeah, he's from a much older Germanic pagan tradition going back thousands of years. And it's a horrible story, isn't it? It's a bit like something out of ancient Greece. He, he's, uh, he's sent away, he's captured by a king, set to work, uh, gets the king's sons, kills them hollows out their skulls and serves them up as drinking cups, then drugs the king's daughter, rapes her, and she has a daughter? A son, I think. An heir, heir to the throne. Well, and just think, it's awesome. It's the ultimate revenge story. It is, isn't it? Yeah, there's no messing around in that story. There is no messing around. And the best bit, which you've even got depicted on the casket, is, uh, yeah, yeah, so he's there. You can see he's been hamstrung. They've had the, he's had the, like, tendons cut at the back of his leg to stop him escaping. And there's the decapitated brother. Can you see? Yeah. Yeah, no head. Um, and there's the goblet made of the, 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 the skull in his hand, and he's, he's drugging Beatilda, the daughter, but he escapes on a flying machine. Oh, I'd forgotten that. <laughs> yes, yes, it's like Daedalus and Icarus, isn't it? It yeah. is. And there's the woman plucking the birds to make the flying machine. So a little duck. In, in the, exactly. Oh, he's got away. He's got away. He's I an escaping. I think I'll just go into the nativity story. Yeah, yeah. I don't want to be plucked yeah. to be made into a flying machine. But in a weird way, though, isn't that symbolic, the idea of resurrection? Because what you see with Welland, Welland doesn't really go out of fashion as a story. When the Vikings return in the Viking Age in yeah. the 19th century, 
Welland starts to appear on crosses, on crucifixes, bizarrely. So you get pagan images on a cross. And it's the idea of resurrection. Well, it's what you've got here, isn't it? Pagan on one side and uh, Christian on the other side. I guess the other link for me is it's a, it's about kings. It's about the king who is really horrible to, to Wayland. And you've got these, these wise kings who actually, their message tells Mary and uh, Jesus to get the hell out of town and, and, and go to Egypt, thus saving his life, thus saving the world. If, yeah, absolutely. Right, there's the echo of the bad king behind both stories, Herod being the, oh, the course, bad yeah, king with, yeah. with Jesus and, and, and this idea of a hopeful, um, in a way, revenge. Because I suppose the early Christians that we're talking about, the Anglo-Saxons, we haven't even given the date, we're talking um, early 8th century, mm. so this was 700-ish, probably made in Northumbria around the um, monastic establishments of Wilfred, one of my favourite of the saints, um, this great aristocrat that converts and sets up his powerhouse at Hexham and Ripon. Look, this is what really hacks me off about academics. She says blithely, oh, it's 8th century. Oh, it was <laughs> made in Northumbria. Oh, how can you say that? <laughs> <laughs> it takes a lot of, uh, yeah, lots of very lengthy academic articles to get to the one point, which is essentially that all the way around the edge, you've got runes. Yeah. And those runes are all written in a certain dialect. You know, like in train spotting. Irvin Welsh writes with a Glaswegian accent in the text. Watched it again two days ago, yeah. Amazing. It's coming out, and the next one's coming out. Yes, um, I saw that that evening. It's a great, in parenthesis, a great way to spend a day seeing the first train spotting, then going to the pictures and seeing the second one. Anyway, let's just carry on. <laughs> it's relevant because uh, what Irvin Welsh was trying to do is show in writing in text what a Glaswegian accent sounds like. <sighs> and actually, the, major- the English language, up until the Oxford English Dictionary, really, had some variations. So if you were writing something down in Northumbria or you were writing it down in London, the way you wrote your vowels, the way you wrote your words would, have a, would sound like the accent. And the runes, if you look at them, and they're in Old English, They've got the accent of the Northumbrians. Oh, so we can great. sort of date yeah. it to around then. Um, uh, there's also, isn't there, there's the, the, the fact that a lot of the carvings look quite similar to the illuminated manuscripts that were coming out of Northumberland at that time. Absolutely. And we, and we should say something about the style of it, because this was something we, we were both struck by, weren't we? A lot of people might look at some of these figures. They're not realistic. They're not well-proportioned um, and call this bad art. Academics at the, at the British Museum <laughs> slagged it off yeah. when they first got They thought it was a fake as well yeah. for a long time. But, but what do you think? This, this isn't bad art, is it? It's wonderful art. It's, it, it's so lively. It is, it, it's really, really... Well, it's funny, isn't it? Nowadays, people go back and look at the Beano and, and think of it as really sort of one of the, the uh, iconographic representations of Britain in the late 40s and, yeah. and, and early 50s. This comes just after the classical Roman period. And in fact, the Romans were making boxes not dissimilar to this. I, I suspect that this was inspired by some of the things that... The Romans were making, but it's in a completely different style. And there is there's something a bit up your bum about a lot of awful uh, about a lot of Roman sculpture, isn't it? It's so kind of frozen in time and so kind of macho. There's nobody like that here. It's it's just well, it it, it is like those illuminated manuscripts. It's it's full of puns. It's full of trickery. These 
These were, it was created by smart people for smart people, I'd suggest. Oh, I love all of that. That gets me, that's exactly why I love studying the Anglo-Saxons. And for me, um, everything is set up with these runes on the front because right the way around the edge here, you can see runic inscriptions. Runes are amazing anyway, because they're not just an alphabet. They're not just A, B, C. They're, they've got all meanings associated with them, stories, poems associated with them. And I've got a translation of the, the, the first book. This is a riddle running around the edge, and it says, the fish beat up the sea onto the mountain, mountainous cliff. The king of terror, so kings again, king of terror, became sad when he swam onto the grit, whale's bone. So it's a riddle telling you the answer, which is that this is about a beached whale. The king of terror swam onto the grit. A whale has been beached, and then that whale's bone has become this casket. But what it has, I mean, this is where I'm going to go all poncy academic on you again. There's this wonderful rhetorical device called prosopopoeia, prosopopoeia which is where an object can speak with a human voice. And the Anglo-Saxons love this. They make onions and crosses and manuscripts tell their own stories. This box is telling its own story. It's speaking. The actual bone is speaking. So you know the minute you encounter it, this is a riddle. It's That's a whole like a, riddle. It's like a modern animation, isn't it? You can imagine panning in yeah. on a box and it starts opening its mouth and chattering. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I'm made of whale bone. Um, but and then it's, so that teaches you when you're looking at it to think, right, well, in that case, I've got to approach all of this as a riddle. I've got to see it all as a visual and verbal riddle. I suppose the other thing about that is that very few people, even I would imagine a lot of royal people, uh, would have been literate at that time. Exactly. And so all that notion of, of puns and gags and clues in an actual thing, it, it's another way of, of reading. It's another way of deciphering. So it's a learning mechanism whereby you don't actually have to be able to read to understand what's going on. You're absolutely right. And the use of runes as well. The fact, in fact, there is, we should, we should say, so you've got the, we've about got us. one Sit back and relax. We've got we've got the two the, the Christian Magi scene and the well and the Smith there. Yeah. Um moving around, we'll come to that one last. <laughs> we've got Romulus and Remus oh, at yeah. the side. Um and again you've got runes that say here Romulus and Remus uh, reside in Romechester. It's called Romechester. Um we'll come back and have a look at it. But I just wanted to turn to the back, because this is where the, the inscriptions get really interesting and really come to that point you were making there Tony about this is uh, teaching new techniques of reading to a population that are having to come to terms with a religion that is off the book a religion that needs literacy yeah because we haven't said have we that yeah. the, it, the this was a, essentially a pagan world after the Romans left and, and, and various movements came in from Germany. But now you've got two lots of missionaries coming in, one lot from up north, one lot from down south in Canterbury. So, the, so gradually Christianity is taking over. But I think I'm right in saying, I have no idea what the date of this, but one of the bigwigs in Christianity said... Don't smash up all the old pagan stuff. Incorporate it into new, into our new world, yeah. so people will understand that the new experience is in many ways not dissimilar from their own, their old one, and they don't have to fight it. Yes, you are so right. It's Gregory the Great, the Pope oh. himself, who sends the mission over, um, and he says, "Yeah, you're right. You know, don't just destroy the the idols in the temples, but don't destroy the temples themselves because people are used to going to them." And it's that wonderfully understanding version of of, of um, conversion that the Anglo-Saxons that allow the Anglo-Saxons to flourish and develop their own form of art. They don't just say. 
right, we're Christian now, so we have to destroy everything that's gone before. Instead, they have this strange um, transition, which means they take their old traditions and meld them into something new. And I think that's what makes such stunning works like the Linda's Fun Gospels, but this lovely thing. And, and they're aware of this, because I think what you see around the edge here on the back panel... And we'll talk about the fact that, that it's a scene from Jewish history. But you've still got the runic inscription. It runs up the left-hand side, goes slightly smaller across the top, and then it turns into Latin. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. For turning back to rooms. I, I mean, I've heard people say, oh, oh dear, what an accident. To that's a mistake. Suddenly <laughs> started thinking in Latin. No, no, it shouldn't be like that. Yeah. out. Uh, but no, that's deliberate. And, and what it's saying is we are at a transitional point. We're, we've got our old culture and we're embracing this new culture. We haven't actually talked about what this story is, have mm. we? This is the sack, of, the sack of Jerusalem. That's right. So you've got in the middle, you've got uh, more of these pillars that you were describing earlier on, which I suppose is, is the Holy of Holies. Mm. And then on one side, You've got all the Romans coming in da -da -da -da, with all their mm. swords. Climbing up on the roof and fighting on the top, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and then on the other side, uh, these are the Jews fleeing, aren't they? That's it, yeah, that's it. And then below, you've got this strange, uh, again, echoes of kingship all the way around, because Romulus and Remus were kings as well. So I think the whole thing is about regal regal power. And this king seems to be taking hostages and gifts. Who would have been King Titus? Yeah, it's all about Titus's attack on, um, on, on, the, on the temple, isn't yeah. it? But how interesting that this is made in Northumbria, in the north of England, in the 8th century, and yet they're referencing Jewish history. Yeah, which sort of implies, doesn't it, that the, there was much more familiarity with Jewish history outside the Bible amongst those early Christians, or maybe even people generally, I don't know, than, than there is now. It's like we, we, we know nothing about the sack of Jerusalem. Yeah, I mean, this was coming from a text by Josephus, this, this text of uh, the history of the Jews. And, and, the, and what it's actually saying to the people who'd have looked at this box is the Anglo-Saxons are becoming literate, but they're also becoming quite knowledgeable in, in world affairs. Yeah. And, and this is an awakening. I mean, we've been describing the pre-Christian era. It's all building in timber. Um, literature is orally transmitted, but it's not written down. But they're really showing off their newly acquired skills and knowledge here, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and like all the other stories, it's very multi-layered, isn't it? Because 
the sack of Jerusalem in many ways was symbolic of the old dispensation has now been destroyed. Uh, mm. Jerusalem is sacked. All the stuff that people talk about in the Old Testament, that's kind of gone. From now on, there will be a new dispensation. Yeah, and then you've got the, the idea of Christianity emerging out of the Judaic tradition. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think this is this is a really extraordinary combination of images because then when you add in Roman history, so I'm turning the, bo- the casket round now, um, and this is, if you're looking at the box from the front, this is the left-hand side. Yeah. This is Romulus and Remus, and um, again, I think we've got this idea of kingship running throughout, but this is Romulus and Remus unlike you've ever seen it, isn't it? Yeah. It's, yeah. for a start, it's upside down, because traditionally you've got, on the Capitoline Hill, you've got the, the, the wolf above. Two, yeah, 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 absolutely, yeah. And then Romulus and Remus tend to be children kind of underneath suckling, whereas these are grown men lying on the ground, <laughs> suckling from the upside down mother wolf, while the well, father wolf's there. And then the father was licking, licking a foot. <laughs> looking after the baby. Yeah. Um, but it's such an unusual composition. It's, it, it's a beautiful piece of work, isn't it? It's, it's so small. It's only about the, oh, the size of a what. Um, it's small. It's a mobile phone in length. That it is, it, yeah. It? yeah. The whole thing, yeah. And, 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 but it's this half a dozen figures, so many trees and, and animals and all the runes around it. It's... Mm. Gosh, you would have loved to have been given this. I know. Which I suppose leads me on to another question. I know what you're Art historian. <laughs> Who owned what? it? <laughs> Who owned it and what was it for? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is the biggie, isn't it? Um, well, I think because it, it's so high status, it has to have been owned by um, by someone from the, the upper classes, either royalty or, or arist- aristocracy. Um, there's a connection with Wilfred, which makes sense because Wilfred's one of the very early converts to Christianity. He was an, a Northumbrian prince who developed these incredibly wealthy early monasteries. And you must know this, from from your work on Time Team, but monastic sites, we're not talking about a quiet little cottage with, with, with old elderly monks and herb gardens. Monasteries were powerhouses, weren't they? Yeah, and in a sense, for 100 years or so, Northumberland actually drove the whole country, didn't it? It was... You know, it was the uh, it was the London of its time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, uh, to, to to give something to someone who was central to power in in Northumberland meant it was someone who was central to power th- throughout the the whole country. Absolutely. Um, I mean, I suspect you say it could have been a prince or, or a king. It's all about kingship. It is. It's all about if you're a good king, you are one of God's chosen, if you're a bad king, you are, you're you cast down into the, the lower depths. Surely it has to have certainly gone. I, think, I mean, we have to think about the people making it and the people that are receiving it, because I think there's two different things. The people making it have to be literate, which means it's probably coming out of the monastery, because the majority of people aren't writing in 8th century North, um, Northumbria. And so it's probably being made in some sort of Christian monastic environment, but I think it's being made for diplomatic ends. This ends up in France, after all. It ends yeah. up in Alsace. And um, the fact that it's there suggests it was taken there as a gift, diplomatic gift, probably. Uh, it's all speculation. We can't know for sure. Well, we know it ended up there. Yeah. Well, what do you think might have been in it if Ooh. it was a diplomatic gift? Well, I think, again, I think, you know, it, it's, it's quite fragile uh, if it's made of bone. It, it couldn't really carry... A heck of a lot of weight. Some people have thought maybe a manuscript was in there. Some people thought gold, but um, I don't know if it'll take a lot of gold. No. I tend to err uh, on the side of caution and say paperwork. 
<laughs> this is diplomacy. Jenny, well, you know, like like the, the Chancellor's box, yeah. but if you're going to negotiate a diplomatic marriage, because, you know, the Franks and the Christ and the Anglo-Saxons were marrying into each other's lineages, um, you could send that sort of diplomatic paperwork in a it, case like this. It's got that, that very raw ivory look about it, yeah. hasn't it? Mm. Um, and, of course, there's... No jewels or anything. Now, you said well, it's obvious that there was a clip on the front to mm. hold it down. Would it have looked like this originally, or would it have been more like a Greek statue that's probably orange and mauve and <laughs> green? Coloured. We're not sure if it was painted. I mean, so many things were. The crosses certainly were painted, and what you see is just the underbelly. Um, this would have had silver clasps, so we know that it would have been more decorative. And a handle, look, you've got the, the nice sort of space where a handle would have gone on the top. And it, it, we're missing these bone bits that would have joined the lid on um but uh, but i mean it's not far off we've got the dimensions we've mm. got the sense of it and i think the fact that it's left pale like this is implying ivory it's suggesting that medium of power and authority um but i mean i just think i think the whole thing is it's been given an anglo-saxon twist there's a theory isn't there that it, it, when it when it went to france for diplomatic reasons it went to the the church as you've described and after a while, people kind of forgot what it was, but they, they knew it was important. They knew it was holy, and they kept it above the altar. There's lots of references over the centuries, aren't there, of this of this strange casket which contained I don't know bits of old saint or <laughs> or, or whatever, and it remained in that church. We think until the French Revolution, when everything had to be ripped out of all the churches, and somehow ended up in this little town a few miles away where it was being used as a sewing box. I know, absolutely amazing that this is your sewing box. <laughs> Anglo-Saxon bone casket. And there was this wonderful thing that it's, it's remained almost perfect. One side disappeared, didn't it? That's right. And actually, that's the side we haven't talked about. This one's in Florence, bizarrely. And, and this, is this, this is the most enigmatic side. This is the one that does everybody's head in. Yeah. Um, so what do you see... Well, um, it, uh, I'm cheating because uh, I, I know about it, but it, it's um, we think it's German, don't we? Yeah. And I can see a horse yeah. uh, in the middle. Uh, on the left-hand side, I can see something that looks like the kind of costume that people dress up in in Venice for <laughs> carnival. It looks like a, like a big horse head on the top and a person at the bottom, and he's sitting on a some sort of chair with a soldier next to him. And then on the right-hand side, there are three women who look like a wood carving out of the Brothers Grimm. Mm, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I love... This is possibly my favourite bit of the whole of the cast, <laughs> the three women. She said pointing to the three women. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. I'm waving my feminist flag here. Yeah. But, yeah, we've got, uh, we've got very, very odd and unparalleled images. What's fascinating about the whole casket is there's virtually no no equivalence to these images like the, the magi we all think we know what the three magi look like they don't look like this yeah mary does not look like a teardrop and, and the men are not dressed as roman soldiers they have obviously had to take these legends these stories that they're hearing and visually interpret them in their own way these three elderly women if you if you just extracted that and mm. asked somebody what period they were from i'm sure they would say a, a woodcut of the 18th or 19th century it's just, yeah. and what do you think they are then well the thing that they remind me of immediately i suppose is macbeth's witches absolutely the weird sisters the weird sisters that's what it comes from because this is weird these are the weird the uh, norns the um 
the sort of pagan goddesses that spin the threads of fate. And at any point, they can cut your fate off. And so, but that becomes, you're so right, that becomes the idea behind the three weird sisters that we remember from Macbeth, the legacy stays on. So that's quite an iconic little image, yeah. those three win women together. Um, but the rest of it, it's its an enigma, isn't it? We've got mm. this horse in the middle and uh, looking down at what might be a pile of hay or a fire or something below it. Well, there's a, I think there's a little body shrouded. Can you see that? Oh, little yes. tiny body. I've never noticed yeah. that before. There's a little head. And it's got this shrouding around it. So I think that's a tomb. Honestly, if you come to the BM and have a look at this, you needn't look at anything else. Just come here, spend an hour and go away again. Your head gets blown every time yeah. with this object. I mean, it just gets weirder and weirder. And you've, the character you were describing there with the wings and the hooves yeah. sat on the mound, its mouth is bound with a serpent. But you can actually, on this cast, it's brilliant. You can see the tongue of the serpent sticking out, touching the top of the staff of the warrior that's walking towards. But we don't know what this story is. We don't is. know what this story is. I, I know there's a clue in the, that under the belly of the horse, there is, there's, I wouldn't have known if I hadn't read about it, but it, it's a like a triple knot, isn't it? Yeah. Which is, signifies, is it Thor? Oh, uh, Odin. Odin. Odin or Woden, yeah. yeah. And actually they reoccur all over the book. So you can see there's one under the belly of the horse. Have you seen the one behind the three men? Oh, yeah. There's yeah. an Odin's knot. Yeah, yeah. And there's another Odin's knot on the top. With a portrait of Odin. Because you've got the Odin's knot in the corner and then you've got this weird character with, holding a staff with a hood on and these double hook-beak birds over the top. And Odin's symbols were two ravens, Huyn and Munin, thought and memory. So this, I think, is Odin watching over the whole scene on the top as well. So that echo of Germanic paganism, despite the fact that this is a literate um, object, an object with words on it and Latin on it that must be coming out of a Christian context, yeah, yeah. it's so densely pagan. Um, which, which again, it, for me, it's like one of those objects where one time is blending into the into the next. History's not about these cutting points, is it? It's about no. merging across time. Yeah. This object merges everything. This is this is the antithesis of ISIS. The, the notion that you can like the, destroy it? culture and in some way you dis destroy the way people think and you've got the right thing and everybody else has got the wrong thing. Mm. This is this is much more magical. It's cultural transformation, cultural transition and, and linguistic transition and, and, and a sense of actually trying to understand lots of different worlds and forging a new world out of it. Yeah. I think it's a really inspiring object. I think it's a really, um, it's an enigma and we will never get completely to the bottom of it. The reason that that panel on the side is so bizarre, the one with the three weird sisters, is because the runes here are really hard to decode. At some points, they're working as letters, A, B, C, but as others, they seem to be working as words because each rune had an associated word. So like the I rune can also mean the word ice. Yeah. Um, and so th this is a, a riddle that we can't really fully unpick. And there's still so much to try and understand about it. Um, Tony, we've, we've, we've been chatting away with such enormous enthusiasm for ages. <laughs> I don't think we've even covered everything, have we? But I, don't, well, I don't think we've talked about the top. I don't, I just... <laughs> Much. Yeah. We, we, we should just say the top is beautiful because of the style. It's different, isn't it? I yeah. love. We've got the story of Edgel. Uh, we can see his name. Edgel is the brother of 
well and the smith yeah so that that pagan mythology is carrying on but don't you think that this is the most dynamic panel in many ways look at the way that these characters this one's like a double height they can't see it (laughs) (laughs) i'm getting excited i'll share images but but look this character's sideways this one's crouching underneath this is a battle but what a exciting way to show battle. Oh, it's, yeah, yeah. And the, and the costumes. I mean, there's so much you could plunder from this as, as a cultural artefact. Um, I, I hope we haven't been too inarticulate uh, in our excitement, <laughs> but but I, I would recommend that you do hot foot, I've said this twice before, down to the <laughs> British Museum and, and, and have a look at it. Because you... I suppose one, one of the most important things, you said to me earlier, I love small finds. Yes. And it is really quite small and crowded within it are so many mysteries so much wonderful culture uh i feel just privileged to be in the same room as it really i mean the thing is the enthusiasm is bursting out of both of us because um it is this this idea that you have a moment in history captured i love being an art historian because artworks like this they were there if this could actually speak it witnessed that time it can speak it's just that we can't quite hear it exactly and that's what we're trying to do so it's telling it's got a voice across time how wonderful to have this chance to talk to you about this i'm so grateful um if you've enjoyed this podcast do subscribe you can go to historyhit.com slash art detective you can follow me on twitter i'm dr yanina ramirez and you can follow tony what's your twitter handle tony I can't I remember. Tony, Tony underscore Robinson. I've got the blue tick. Yeah. That's all I care about. He's real. Yeah. <laughs> uh, thank you so much, Tony. What an absolute pleasure. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.